This is episode 58 with registered dietitian, running coach, host of the RD Real Talk podcast, and no fan of diets, Ms. Heather Kaplan. Hey everyone, I'm glad to be back on another episode of the Strength Running Podcast, and I hope you're excited as well. Today's show features a wide-ranging conversation with Heather Kaplan, a registered dietitian and running coach on a lot of different topics, and I have you to thank for that. A few weeks ago, I sent out a question on Twitter asking for questions for an RD, and you delivered. A big thanks to everyone who submitted questions. We didn't quite get to every single one, so a part two is quite the possibility. But here in this episode, we're going to discuss everything from gluten intolerance to superfoods, veganism, fasting, how much meat is enough, and more. Thank you to Eli, Jen, Nate, Chris, and Steph for your thoughtful questions on Twitter. And if you'd like to potentially get your questions answered on the podcast, give me a follow on Twitter. My handle is JasonFitz1. Now, before we start, I want to mention that the foundation and context of our discussion is based on a model of eating called intuitive eating. It's not a diet, and it's what we recommend here at Strength Running. The feedback from the many dietitians I've interviewed is that this is a superior way of eating precisely because it's not so limiting. You don't count calories, you don't measure, weigh, or score your food, and you certainly don't attempt to calculate macronutrient ratios. If you want to check out the book Intuitive Eating that this is all based on, I set up a really easy short link to make this fast and easy for you. Just go to strengthrunning.com intuitive and you'll get all the details. Without further ado, please welcome my guest, Ms. Heather Kaplan. All right, let's dive in. Heather, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to talk to you because I <clears throat> happened to look at your Twitter profile and it said, fan of real talk, not a fan of diets. So I thought you'd be perfect to chat with on the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad that caught your attention. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start there. I mean, how how did you become a registered dietitian and and why aren't you a fan of diets? Are, are, are those interrelated in any way? Definitely. I became a registered dietitian right out of college. So a lot of people don't know the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. So in case that hasn't been said here already, um, a dietitian has a degree in nutrition and then goes on to complete a one-year dietetic internship, which is a collection of supervised practice hours that are required to take the certification exam. So I did that straight out of college. And when I decided to major in nutrition, I was pretty deep into an eating disorder that I was unaware of at the time. So uh, what is now pretty well known as orthorexia was something that I was experiencing. And that's considered an unhealthy fixation with eating healthy foods. And that's something I really identify with um, when I think back to my college years. So as I started studying nutrition, you know, if you had asked me at the time, I would have said, oh, I'm just really interested in food. And I was able to lose weight by changing how I decided to eat. And I want to help other people do that too. Um, and I truly believed that at the time I thought I was just trying to be really healthy and that I was doing what was best for my body. Um, fast forward a couple of years as I got into my career and learned more about nutrition and more about nutrition counseling and was starting to recover from my eating disorder and kind of recognizing that what I was doing was actually very unhealthy. Um, 
I had a little bit of an identity crisis within my profession and felt kind of disconnected from the work that I was doing because it felt a little bit triggering to me. And also that if I kind of fell into that hole of obsessing over healthy foods because I followed a diet, then it might be the case for other people too. And so I started to kind of veer away from the traditional dietetic career paths and the traditional form of nutrition counseling because I worried that I was doing more harm than good. And over the past couple of years, I've discovered a different philosophy within dietetics. Um, there's a book called Intuitive Eating that was written by two dietitians in the mid 90s, which um, kind of thinking back to like what they must have been thinking at the time and how they decided to write the book at the time. I'm like, man, they were such rebels. I love it. <laughs> but now it's much more widely accepted and adopted among dietitians. And it's something that really resonated with me because it encourages people to stop dieting and to start kind of learning more about what their body needs and what kind of messages we can receive from our bodies if we're opening to listening and trusting it. Um, so that's kind of how I've fallen into the work that I'm doing now. And that's why I say I'm not a fan of diets. Yeah. Well, first, thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad things are, are going well for you now. It's really yeah. interesting for me to, to hear this because, you know, I, I've certainly gone through phases where I've been really, really adamant about what I've eaten. And then, you know, I'll go off the rails and, and have, you know, some days where, I am not eating healthy whatsoever. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think in the past I've, I've used my, you know, my body type. It's really hard for me to gain weight. I'm just naturally very thin. And the fact that I was always running a lot as an excuse to, you know, feed the furnace, whatever I could. And if the fire's hot enough, anything will burn, you know, as the kind of the, the runner saying goes. Um, but clearly that's not really the best way of going about things. How do you strike the balance between, focusing on healthy food and giving yourself some leeway to have some fun and not put the pressure on yourself to be perfect all the time. Yeah, it's it's a hard balance for a lot of people to find because when we start to learn what kind of diet rules we follow, sometimes unconsciously, it can be a little bit disturbing or uncomfortable to explore like where those came from and how long we've been following them and why we do them. And we also start to become much more aware of the diet culture around us and realize like, wow, it kind of seems like everyone's on a diet, you know? And I think that that's kind of the result of having a little bit too much information at our hands. Like we have so much nutrition information available online. You have nutrition labels that tell you exactly how many calories are in every serving. And you have articles left and right in the media telling you this way is better. No, this way is better. No, this way is better. And we kind of forget that nutrition is not only a relatively young science, but it needs to be very individualized. There's not one diet that's perfect for everyone. And so I think some people get really wrapped up in knowing what's healthy for them um, versus what seems to be the recommendations for everyone else and how they kind of fit into that. So you know, one of the first steps that I do with a lot of my clients is just kind of exploring what food rules they use and what filters they might put their food decisions through before they decide what to eat. And if a lot, if it seems that more often than not, they're eating something because it's supposedly healthy for them versus what they actually like, then we try to kind of stop there and start exploring, okay, what foods do you actually like? And how can we start incorporating a few of those into your diet as well so that you feel kind of more balanced instead of feeling like you're constantly depriving yourself of foods that you like? You know, I've 
kind of always used this model of intuitive eating in my own life, but I don't think I ever had a label for it until a couple of years yeah. ago. Can you explain what exactly intuitive eating is and in your view, why you think it's it's more beneficial or superior to following a stricter diet? You know, you, I was just reading some article about, you know, some of the uh, best and worst diets. And there's like 40 different diets just in this one article that you can choose from. <laughs> you can be paleo, keto, go on Whole30, there's Atkins, and the list just goes on and on and on. Why is intuitive eating? Well, first of all, what is it? And then is it really superior to all of these other branded diets that are out there? Yeah, well, first, I'd like to make a distinction that I don't consider intuitive eating a diet. Um, but it's funny that you say, you know, now that I'm hearing about it, I think that's how I eat. And I hear that from a lot of people. And it makes me really happy because I'm like, good for you. You've somehow avoided all of the diet culture that surrounds us every single day. Um, and that's not easy to do. So intuitive eating, as I said earlier, is a book that was written by two dietitians. So if you look it up online, you'll be directed either to an Amazon link or to their website, intuitiveeating.org. And um, it is a little bit different than mindful eating, which I can differentiate if that would be helpful, but they outlined a set of 10 principles to follow as you start to learn to eat intuitively. So I don't like to say that those are rules for intuitive eating. I don't like to say that that's how you follow the diet of intuitive eating. Um, but these 10 principles kind of outline different steps for learning to tune into your body and learning to fuel yourself in a way that makes the most sense for you. Um, so those are things like honoring hunger, learning how to feel fullness, how to eat to satisfaction instead of just eating to satiety. Some of the principles have to do with exercise and respecting your body. So they're encompassing kind of all different aspects of health instead of just saying, if you eat a certain way, you will be healthy, which is what a lot of diet culture wants us to believe. Now, my running coach brain is is lighting up right now because intuitive <laughs> eating to me is the diet world's version of running by feel. It is instead of relying on your GPS watch, instead of constantly being obsessed with your pace and your splits and your ground contact time and heart rate and vertical oscillation and all these crazy metrics that most runners uh, have access to these days. Instead, let's pay attention to the internal feedback we're getting from our body as we're out there in a run, in a race, during a workout. And if we can learn to decipher those signals and almost speak the language of our bodies, we're going to be able to be better communicators with our bodies. We're going to be able to fine tune our pacing even better than if we solely relied on a GPS watch. And to me, it, it's very similar. It, it's having a better mm -hmm. relationship with the signals that your body is sending you, whether that's when you're out running and it's in terms of pace and effort and ratings of perceived exertion and all those things, or it's at the dinner table, whether or not you feel full, you know, are you eating till you're bursting at the seams or just eating until you're satisfied. So there's a lot of parallels there. And, and I, I know as a coach that running by feel and, and learning intuitively what different paces feel like, what different efforts feel like, it does give you a better mastery over you know, the, the kind of the sport of running. And I'm wondering if you think that intuitive eating is, you know, is, is almost like, you know, the phrase, give a man a fish, he'll eat a day. 
And but if you teach a man how to fish, he'll eat for his lifetime. I feel like this is Mm -hmm. teaching people how to eat and communicate with their bodies so they don't need to rely on any diets telling them how to eat in the first place. Right. Yeah, I've always I've always said that if my clients reach a point where they feel like they can do things on their own instead of having to continue to come to me for accountability or meal plans or whatever else they think they might need from me, then I've done my job. Like I want everyone to feel more confident in making their own food choices instead of feeling like they have to see me every week for the rest of their lives. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah. like I, I tell then, my one-on-one runners that uh, I hope they get to a point where they feel comfortable enough with their running that they can fire me. And that would totally. make me really happy. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, you know, I also do a little bit of run coaching. And one of the things that I hear so much from my runners or pretty often from my runners is, um, you know, if I give them an easy run, I might get a comment that says something like, well, this was my pace today, but I thought it would be a lot faster for an easy run. I'm like, well, that's why we don't pay attention to pace because an easy run should be by effort, not by pace. And you should be able to just zone out and say, okay, I went easy today, totally based on how I feel. And that might be one pace one week and it might be another pace another week. And I don't really care as long as the effort is the same. Yes. I am fist pumping right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And like you said, the same is true if you relate that to intuitive eating. If someone is constantly counting calories or macros or whatever they happen to be counting in order to decide whether or not they're eating healthy and they might say, oh, I ate X number of calories today, which is what I need. Therefore, I should be full, but I'm still hungry. You know, that's taking away from that intuition and trusting what your body needs versus just eating as much as you feel like you need that day and honoring what your hunger is asking for and like you said, stopping when you feel comfortably full or when you feel satisfied instead of continuing to eat. And I think that goes both ways. We get certain messages saying, you know, this is how much you should eat in a day. And if you're exercising, it should be this exact calories more. Um, So some people are either eating more or less than what they actually need because they're so bound to those numbers as an outside source of direction versus saying, here's what I'm going to eat today because this is what I'm craving and it's what I'm hungry for, or this is how full I need to be. And so I think I'm good for today. You know, like that, those are the two big differences. Yeah, I can't agree more. It's just, it's, it's listening to your body rather than listening to the scale or the macronutrient table you're referencing or whatever the calorie Mm -hmm. count is. It's, it's just a lot more effective. Um, yeah, now Heather, I want to dive into the really fun part of our conversation now. I sent out a a tweet on Twitter the other day asking for questions, and I got a lot. So this is going to be really fun. We have questions that range all over the place, so uh, we are just going to bounce all around. And I I thought it would be helpful to kind of get a little bit more on your background and the the eating philosophy that you subscribe to so that, you know, that's some important context for, you know, when we're answering these kinds of questions. So mm-hmm. in no particular order, and we are certainly going to bounce all over the place, let's get to a three-part question from Jen. So Jen, thank you so much for uh, replying to my tweet and answering this for me, um, or asking this question rather. So Excuse me. Jen wants to know uh, if you can speak to both superfoods, vegan diets, and fasting in the context of improving performance. So maybe we can just start with, quote, superfoods. I'm using my air quotes here. Uh, (laughs) What do you think of these? Are they good for performance? And 
maybe what are they in the first place? So if you looked up superfoods on the internet, you would probably find someone's subjective definition of a superfood, but I don't believe that there is a superfood out there. Um, there are a lot of foods that have a variety of nutrients. Most plants um, have a good balance of nutrients just naturally, which is why they're great for us. And that means fruits and vegetables and grains and nuts and seeds. Um, so a lot of things fall under the category of like a plant-based diet. Um, so maybe those are superfoods. They're like nature's way of balancing all the nutrients that we need. And if we eat a variety of those foods, we're getting a lot of the nutrients we need, probably not all of the nutrients we need, but, um, you know, that kind of speaks to whether or not a vegan diet is supposedly good for performance. And I think, that's only true on an individual basis. So for some people, following a vegan diet is important for moral or ethical reasons. Um, if you're doing it to be healthy, I don't think that it's necessary. Um, I might get a little bit of slack for saying that. But, um, you know, what we see in the nutrition research is that plant-based diets have been shown to improve a lot of our health markers and improve risk of or decrease our risk of developing certain chronic health diseases, but that's a plant-based diet that is not an exclusive plant diet. So, you know, if, if I can encourage anyone to eat a few more fruits and vegetables or just add some more variety to their diet, then I think that's great. But, um, none of us need to be seeking out these so-called superfoods or adding them into our diet for any kind of magical results. Yeah, I think I, I got into this kick right after college, way before I learned anything about nutrition, where I was just listening to the listicle articles in Men's Health. And I yeah. remember thinking <laughs> that, okay, black beans are healthier than pinto beans, and uh, blackberries are healthier than bananas, because of, you know, some random, you know, number of phytonutrients or something in the food. And mm -hmm. I've since realized that, look, all foods uh, are all plant based foods are healthy, but for slightly different reasons, they have different nutrient right. profiles and variety really is the spice of life and the key to a very nutrient dense diet. And I think that's the kind of more important uh, aspect for runners to think about. Um, now, what about fasting? Is fasting something that uh, can potentially improve performance? Or do you think that's something that should be left to uh, other folks with other health goals? Yeah, I generally, I mean, fasting is kind of a vague question, like whether or not fasting is good for us. Um, there could be a lot of different ways that someone approaches the idea of fasting. So whether that's intermittent fasting, and if they approach that from eating during certain hours of the day or spacing out meals for a certain number of hours or eating a certain number of calories within a certain number of hours. You know, there are a lot of different ways that people go about intermittent fasting. Um, I don't encourage any of them because if we're going back to kind of listening to what your body needs, um, anytime you're trusting an outside source of rules to decide what you eat throughout the day, then you're taking away from your own intuition and your own knowledge of what your body needs and what makes you feel the best and what fuels you the best. So I don't love intermittent fasting. I haven't seen any really strong research in support of it for most people. Um, there are certainly going to be some medical nutrition therapy interventions where intermittent fasting might be helpful for at least a little while. Um, I generally 
don't work with people who have like diabetes or other conditions where that might be helpful for a little while. So I can't speak to that too much. But if we're talking about just kind of the everyday runner who's interested in maybe tweaking their diet here and there, I don't recommend intermittent fasting or fasting in general. Um, again, it's just taking away from your own knowledge of what your body needs and anything that makes you question your intuition with hunger or fullness is something that is probably not serving you. I was just reading, um, uh, I'm reading Alex Hutchinson's book endure right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a really interesting chapter on fasting. And, um, actually I, I don't know if it's an entire chapter, but he does talk about some interesting research for really long endurance events. So we're talking the marathon and even longer. And mm -hmm. there, there are some like very, niche, nuanced ways of using intermittent fasting to slightly bump up your fat burning capability. Um, not that you want to really solely rely on fat as fuel because it's not quickly available and it's not really available for high intensity exercise. But you right. know, if you can get 10% more energy from fat rather than carbohydrate as a marathoner or an ultra marathoner, you know, there's, there, there's something to be said about that. But Heather, I completely agree with you that for the majority of runners, it, it's not really the most effective use of their time. And I think it can lead to some potential issues down the road if they're relying on it too often. So for me, it's like, you know, look, if you want to wake up once in, the, once in a while during your early uh, phases of training when you're getting ready for a marathon to do some long runs and, you know, run a relatively short long run, maybe 11 to 14 miles, something like that with no breakfast. You know, I, I don't really think that's a big problem. You're going, you're doing it after an overnight fast. You're, you're teaching your body to rely more on fat, but at the end of the day, you need to be doing those runs fully fueled with some fuel along the way so that you can really focus on performance. And that's, what's going to help runners really achieve their potential in these longer races rather than trying to play around with like these weird fueling options because you know you're they're not it's not going to be fun you're going to be hitting the wall you're going to have some really slug sluggish lethargic later miles in those long runs and mm -hmm. uh that is not only physically draining but it really saps your confidence and, and your mental toughness too so I, I think it's something to be sparingly for more advanced runners but in my view it's not for every runner Right. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure we'll get a little bit more to like the fat burning things and some of the other questions. But yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people who ask me about intermittent fasting seem like they're kind of looking for a quick fix for something or they think that that's going to be the one thing that like drastically changes the way they run. But again, for everyday runners, especially marathoners, I highly, highly um, encourage you to avoid running your long runs fasted because Marathon training in general is increasing your energy needs so much that if you're putting yourself in that hole right away, it's just harder and harder to gradually climb out of it and to get enough energy to really maintain your level of training safely. Um, so like you said, if it kind of happens here and there and you find that you do okay with it, okay, cool. Um, but what happens with most people that I work with is that they find they feel a lot better when they do fuel their runs instead of going out fasted. So it's, yeah, on an individual basis, um, 
you know, consult a dietitian if you're curious. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing too. You're just going to feel better when you have some food mm-hmm. in your, in your stomach <laughs> you're going to feel better when you're properly fueled. And, right. uh, you know, for, for the runners that I coach, for the runners that, you know, I know it's important to feel good on your key workouts. It's phenomenal for your confidence. Uh, it's great for the overall progression of your training. And if <laughs> you're not feeling good on, you know, your, your faster sessions or your long runs, it's going to be really hard to maintain momentum in a hard training cycle. Um, right. Now, this leads into a good question that uh, Nate submitted, and he wants to know how big a role nutrition plays in injury prevention. So coming off of fasting when you're really dramatically increasing your energy energy needs, I think this is an interesting question. Does nutrition play a role in injury prevention? What do you think? So I think it definitely can. Um, and generally what I see the most often is just that people aren't eating enough. And so their bodies are really kind of struggling to maintain the level of training that they're trying to do. And that's maybe sacrificing, um, even some of your lean body mass. So if you're not getting enough energy, your body kind of turns to first your carbohydrate stores to find energy that it needs. And if you're training for an endurance event, you're burning through those carbohydrates pretty fast. So you probably don't have a lot to pull from. And if you start to get into a negative energy balance for too long, you're going to start to pull from your lean body mass or your protein, your muscle mass in order to burn protein for energy. So Also, you're going to go off of your fat stores, of course, but um, generally what I see is that if people just aren't eating enough, they seem to be putting themselves at a higher risk for injury. Um, That can certainly be true for women if they are under fueling and notice that they are suddenly missing their menstrual cycles every month. Um, That can be putting their bone health at risk and they can be at a higher risk for stress fractures. So in that sense, Nutrition plays a huge role in nutrition or injury prevention, just making sure that you're giving your body the nutrients that it needs in order to rebuild and repair these muscle tissues and to restore or restock your glycogen stores so that you have energy for your next run and you're not feeling fatigued. Um, And then, of course, staying hydrated and getting the right balance of electrolytes so that um, your muscles are firing correctly and um, all of your systems are getting the nutrients that they need and that nutrients are moving through your body um, as quickly as they need to. So, um, all of those things can definitely help with injury prevention. Um, this question might kind of be pointing back to something similar to the, the superfood question of like, is there one food that's going to prevent me from ever getting injured or something like that? Um, to that probably no. Um, but you can definitely see where there are certain foods like omega-3 fats and fruits and vegetables. And again, just eating enough can help reduce kind of the stress load that we put our bodies through while we're training and help us prevent injury by providing those nutrients that our body needs. So it sounds like a varied nutrient-dense diet is the best kind of diet for injury prevention. And we're not really going to be in a situation where certain foods are really good for preventing injuries and some foods should be avoided because they're going to increase your injury risk. It doesn't really work that way, does it? No, no, it doesn't. (laughs) I I like how definitive you were there. (laughs) Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned was, you know, especially for women, not eating enough can lead to, you know, missing your period. uh, That I believe is amenorrhea. And Mm -hmm. I did get a question from <clears throat> um, from Chris on women runners, especially older women runners, maybe they're masters, uh, 40 plus. 
are, are these runners more likely to be deficient in certain nutrients because of their age? And, and, and if so, or, or if there's any nuance here, what are some things that they should be doing to make sure they're, um, you know, getting in the nutrition they need so that they're not sabotaging their running? Yeah, so some women who maybe are postmenopausal might want to be a little more aware of their calcium and vitamin D intake, um, but generally our age is not going to be indicative of a risk of nutrition deficiency. Again, if you're eating a balanced diet and you're eating enough energy throughout the day, um, age is not a huge factor in risk of nutrition, nutrient deficiency if you have access to plenty of foods and you're eating a variety of foods. Um, for kind of the master's levels runners, um, what I would encourage if you're looking to prevent risk of injury, which I think everyone is, <laughs> no matter what your age, um, just adding in some strength exercises and make sure that, making sure that you're maintaining your muscle mass and maintaining the strength in all of your large and small muscle groups to make sure that as you run, um, you're supporting your body with strong uh, joint health and with strong muscles, because that way you can kind of keep going longer and, you know, maintain your level of fitness. Um, again, I don't think if you're kind of taking care of your body and you're eating enough, I don't think age is a huge factor there, but just more of looking into kind of variety of foods and making sure that you're eating enough while you maintain your training level. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Now, I want to talk about two different, really specific types of foods and your thoughts on those. So Steph had a good question. How much meat is too much per week? Is, is that something that, that you think about uh, in terms of general health or also eating for performance? That was an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I've I never thought so. That's anyone... why I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was also a question about protein needs. So I guess this is kind of speaking to that. But um, in terms of how much meat is too much, I'm wondering if she means in terms of saturated fat or in terms of, you know, types of meat that maybe you don't want to overconsume. And I always go back to the point of like, if you're listening to your body and you're more in tune with what you need, you're not going to want to eat the same thing all the time. So if you find that you're eating hamburgers five days a week, like maybe that's a little bit too much red meat, but also how long are you going to be able to do that before hamburgers don't sound very good anymore and your body's craving something else? Um, so what I do see sometimes is that runners claim to be creatures of habit, not just runners, a lot of athletes, um, kind of sticking to what they know works really well for them. And so what I encourage people to do is, um, instead of having just one pre long run meal or one pre, um, long run dinner or breakfast or whatever it might be, you know, exploring different types of foods and journaling what seems to work well for you, both for dinner and for breakfast so that you have a variety of options instead of always eating the same thing. And that can kind of help you fall, prevent falling into this trap of like, hmm, am I eating too much of this one thing? Cause I seem to be having it all the time because I think it's the only thing that works for me. Um, in terms of like, the details of how much we should be eating every week. Again, I think this can be really individual, but if you do find that you're having meat, which I assume to be kind of pork, beef, um, you know, those kind of like red meat or dark meat things, um, instead of poultry or fish, if you find that you're eating that four or five days a week, you could probably use a little bit more variety in your diet. Um, if that happens to be what you really like, um, maybe just trying to explore with different foods and seeing, okay, if I could try something else in place of this one thing that I always have, um, that never really hurts in 
to introduce some variety, but you know, there's not one answer of like exactly 17.5 ounces of meat is too much wheat meat <laughs> per week. If you go over that, it's too much. Um, cause we're all different we all have different needs. What are your thoughts on kind of the sentiment from the book blue zones? I read this last year. I really, really oh, loved yeah. it. Uh, what is it sent? What is your thoughts on the sentiment from that book that generally speaking, the people who live the longest eat very little meat. They don't eat no meat, but it's more mm-hmm. like a once or twice a week, uh, you know, side dish rather than every night it's the main dish. Yeah, I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with plant-based diets. It supports what we have seen in the nutrition research, which is that plant-based diets seem to be the healthiest overall in terms of reducing the risk of chronic health diseases. So you know, eating more plants and less meat can be a healthier approach, but that doesn't mean that eating no meat is the healthiest approach. Um, I have also read Blue Zones and I've heard the author speak. Uh, What I think a lot of people miss when they look at the different Blue Zones, and he talks about this in the book and also when he spoke, um, is just the sense of community and kind of feeling supported by the social connections around you. I think that was also a common thread um, throughout the different Blue Zones in the world, which if anyone hasn't read it, the Blue Zones are areas of the world that have the longest life expectancies and what are some of the things that um, are attributed to that. And I think a lot of the times we saw that Social connections were really important. There's actually a study that came out from Harvard a couple of years ago that supports that. And also something he talks about a little bit in that book is experiencing pleasure with food, which is something that Americans are really missing. (laughs) Um, We are so concerned about our diets and about being healthy all the time, about eating healthier every day, uh, that we really miss out on like, what are the foods that we like and what are food experiences that we enjoy? And we forget that it's okay to find pleasure and to find comfort in certain foods and to enjoy our food experiences, as well as eating a variety of plant-based foods and kind of learning how we like them and what makes sense for us. We could probably do a whole podcast just talking about the Blue Zones because I love (laughs) that book so much. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the community aspect of these Blue Zones, areas where there are a lot more centenarians, those people who are 100 years old or older, uh, is huge. And it's not just how they're eating. It's also the the level of social interaction that they have, uh, the type of exercise that they do is is also uh, really prominent throughout the book and throughout all of the mm-hmm. different blue zones. I mean, it's it's not really endurance training, and it's certainly not powerlifting. It's, it's generally speaking some strength work, but with a lot of very low effort type of aerobic exercise. Um, anyway, we'll, we have to move on. But I definitely <laughs> recommend anybody who's interested in the topic of longevity to pick up Blue Zones. I think it's written by Dan Bittner, if my pronunciation is correct. Really, really fantastic book. It's one of the best books I read in 2017. Um, so let's talk about the second type of food that uh, I wanted to discuss with you. So we talked about meat. Now let's talk about gluten. Uh, Eli wants to know, is there any value in avoiding gluten for people who are not gluten intolerant? And this is, uh, I'll just add, this is interesting to me. Uh, I i love gluten. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> uh, but my wife does have a gluten intolerance. So I, you know, all of our meals that that either I make or she makes are uh, gluten-free. So I've, I've kind of reduced my gluten intake over the last couple of years just out of necessity. Uh, but I'm wondering your thoughts on that. 
Uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, okay, there moving is on. no, yeah, <laughs> there's no health benefit to reducing gluten if you don't have a gluten allergy. Uh, I do think that this is kind of a hot take, but I think that gluten intolerance is largely overprescribed. Um, we see a lot of doctors who, not a lot, but I should say there are some doctors who are just kind of quick to assume if someone's having certain symptoms of IBS or irritable bowel uh, syndrome or irritable bowel symptoms uh, that they must have a food intolerance instead of turning to emotional health or stress levels, which uh, what I see in my work with a lot of eating disorder recovery is that is very influential over our gut health. So um, short answer is no, I don't think that cutting out gluten offers any health benefits. If you feel like you might have a gluten allergy, then you can get tested for that, but you have to be eating gluten at the time for that to pop up. So uh, don't avoid gluten and then go in for a gluten allergy test because it won't produce any significant results. Um, and then again, I think with gluten intolerance, like it's, I'm not saying that no one has it. We don't really know enough about it at the time for us to like put out blanket statements like that. And also I don't think that's ever very helpful, but, um, what I've seen a lot is people who have kind of disordered eating patterns or have chronically dieted and are kind of looking for something that they might be intolerant to. And um, I've just seen a few cases where doctors seem to kind of flippantly assume that it's gluten because we've seen a lot more news about gluten in the past I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. And so they just are kind of quick to say, well, maybe that's what it is. And I'm not saying they're diagnosing this. I'm saying they're kind of mentioning it and people really grasp onto that and then are like, okay, cool. I'm just going to eliminate gluten and go from there when maybe they don't really need to be doing that. Yeah, I think of it very similar to orthotics and also uh, ADHD. They're perfectly yeah. valid things that are prescribed and diagnosed. However, they are over-prescribed and diagnosed. So right. certainly some people need orthotics. Some people actually need medical intervention for ADHD. But for for all three of these these areas, you're definitely right. Like the, it, we've seen a lot of over-diagnosing. Uh, and I think people... You know, kind of speaking to the nature of this question, people are wondering if there's a performance benefit or even just a general health benefit to giving up gluten. And uh, I, I don't think that's that's really the case here. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, let's do one more question. Uh, this this one might also be uh, an interesting one to tackle. Uh, this one is from Nicole. She wants to know how to fuel for training when you're also trying to lose a few pounds. And uh, you know, I, I have some thoughts on this too uh, through my conversations with a lot of other dietitians, but uh, I want to hear what you think first. Yeah, I always caution people against doing that. I think that in general, if you're not fueling enough to support your training, then that means that you're losing weight and that means your body's not getting what it needs. And if you're in training mode, you need to be focused on fueling your body to the point where it can rebuild muscle tissue and restock all of those glycogen stores and keep body fat at a healthy percentage and be able to continue running in a healthy way. If your focus is on weight loss, then that's going to fuel a lot of your decisions and it can get a little bit confusing whether weight loss or training and staying healthy is your priority. Um, so a lot of times weight loss is going to trump training healthy and we don't want that to happen. So um, I mean, in general, I want my clients to get away from a space where they're thinking about weight loss because again, it overrides a lot of the decisions that we make. We want 
to manipulate our bodies in a way that's not very natural instead of listening to what our bodies are asking for. Um, but if you're training, it's especially important to make sure that you're fueling enough. Uh, we talked about that a little bit ago with, um, preventing injury and also keeping for women, keeping your cycle healthy. Um, so if weight loss is your goal, then again, that's just kind of overriding all of your decision-making and probably going to send you into a not so great place with your training and um, your body's going to be lacking the nutrients that it needs in order to gain the fitness that you're trying to gain. My ears perked up when you said the word priority, because I think that's really <laughs> the kind of the, the, the central thing that we have to dial in on, on this kind of a question. Mm -hmm. It's, well, what is your goal right now? What is your priority? Uh, because it's, it's helpful to know that you can't always do two things at once. You know, we can't train for a marathon and expect to put on 20 pounds for that bodybuilding competition that's coming up. Those are right. two goals that are in competition physiologically with one another. If you attempt to train for your for a marathon and enter a bodybuilding competition and gain all this muscle mass, you're going to just get mediocre results for both of them. Yes, you might be able to run your marathon. Yes, you might have gained some weight for your bodybuilding competition in this weird analogy that I'm, that I'm using. <laughs> but, you know, you're just going to be kind of mediocre at both. And you're not really going to achieve as much as you could achieve in one or the other. And, and I think that's exactly true here. If you're, you know, gearing up for a big race, you're training to run a PR, you're otherwise training hard. It's really, really hard to layer on top of those goals weight loss because weight loss is, you know, kind of a math problem. You need to uh, consume less than what you're uh, you're burning, and that's really hard when you're training hard. Um, so I, I think it's another similar area where we're going to get mediocre returns on both goals. And for what I, I usually tell runners, look, if you want to lose some weight, that's great. Let's focus on weight loss for you know maybe a four to six week block of time before your training plan starts. So when you are not really training, when you're kind of just running for fun, maybe you're doing some light base training kind of work, that's a good time to, to focus on weight loss because weight loss really depends more on what you're eating rather than on how you're exercising. And then once you've, you're done focusing on that goal, you can reprioritize focus on training for your race. And I think that's a much more effective approach for accomplishing both goals. Yeah. And I also would caution people against making really dramatic uh, weight loss goals. I mean, again, with my clients and the way that I work with intuitive eating, I never want weight loss to be the goal. Sometimes it might happen sort of naturally as you start to learn, you know, different ways to fuel your body that works best for you as opposed to following a specific diet or a set of rules. Um, but if you get below a weight that's natural or healthy for your body, you're just putting yourself at risk of injury before you even start training. So if you kind of have a weight goal that's unrealistic for you and you're letting that drive a lot of your decisions, again, it really overrides our ability to tune into what our body needs and how we feel because we put so much stock into what the scale is saying and we use that as a measure of success and it can really like make or break your emotional health that day. Now, we should we should add Heather is a real champion right now. <laughs> we are doing this interview while she's with her three month old. Um, <laughs> but Heather, this this is great timing. We're actually wrapping up now. Uh, so thanks so much for doing this with with your baby right on board next to you. Yeah, uh, sure. It's almost like bring your kid to work day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every day. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. 
Well, Heather, thank you so much for for lending your expertise and answering all these uh, wild questions we got from all corners of the internet here. It was really fun for me. Uh, If people want to learn more about you, your work, your philosophies on these kinds of questions, where can we find out more? Sure. My website is just my name, Heather Kaplan, Kaplan with a C dot com. Um, and I also have a podcast called RD Real Talk, where I actually just did a 10 part series on intuitive eating. So if you really wanted to dive into it or even just learn a little bit more about it, I did an intro episode with one of the authors and then all 10 principles uh, starting in January. So those are the most recent episodes on the RD Real Talk podcast. And of course, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, my handle is at Heather DCRD. All right, we got it. That's great. Um, and I can't believe you just did a whole series on intuitive eating after we talked about it today. So I, I hope everyone <laughs> checks that out. Uh, yeah. I think it's a, it's a much more productive, effective way of framing how you approach food and eating and nutrition and fueling. Uh, because at the end of the day, your body's in charge, not some set timetable or or graph of macronutrients or calorie counts it's your body's in charge and you should listen to your body absolutely hey all thank you for listening and being part of the strength running community and a big thanks to heather for coming on while she was with her three-month-old that takes guts don't forget to check out her work at heatherkaplan.com or find her on social media under the handle heather dcrd and before you pause me A quick note to those of you who loved this format of random diet nutrition Q&A, because we have more. In fact, there are two bonus episodes of nutrition Q&A that you can download if you go to strengthrunning.com slash nutrition. They were recorded with my friend Ann Monty, another dietitian and runner, about refueling after hard workouts, how to refuel without gaining weight, balancing running with over snacking, and a lot more. Personally, I love the question about drinking and training. We got a kick out of talking about booze for a few minutes. So if you want in, head on over to strengthrunning.com slash nutrition, and I'll send you to the two Q&A bonus episodes. That's it for me today. As always, if you have any thoughts, questions, concerns, complaints, or ideas for me, please get in touch. I would love to hear from you.